Hey there, listeners. I'm working on a special mailbag episode where I answer your questions. If you have anything you'd like to ask me, just send me an email, sam at kitchentablemagic.org. I'll read all your questions on air in a future episode. Thanks. Kitchen Table Magic is presented by Hipsters of the Coast. Hipsters of the Coast is the premier news and strategy blog for the Magic the Gathering community. Read up on insightful columns written by an expert team of Magic insiders. There's something for everyone. Discussion about legacy, commander, preview cards from the new set, and more. Go to hipstersofthecoast.com for news and strategy on all of your favorite formats. That's hipstersofthecoast.com. Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by Card Kingdom. With fast shipping, the best sleeves, deck boxes, binders, and all the modern legacy and commander staples you could ever want, Card Kingdom is there with the hookup. If you'd like to support the show, just use our affiliate link, cardkingdom.com slash KTM when you shop. Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by Paragon City Games. They're a community-focused game store in Draper, Utah that cares deeply about their player base. Tune in to watch their live paper and moto streams at twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames for daily legacy action. Hello, sir. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Ben Sek. I'm a 25-year uh, Magic player. I've been playing since the very beginning of Magic, but uh, I started actually my uh, career playing in Australia. And uh, from Magic, I, I think it's been one of the you know most formative things in my life, and it's really, really shaped my career as well as you know my my social groups and everything. So I mean, Magic is everything to me. Ben, here's a quick sound check question: How dangerous was it to live in Australia? <laughs> Everyone thinks it's really dangerous with all the wildlife, but actually, I think it might be more dangerous to live in America just because of all, you know, the crazy things that happen on the streets. So I actually think the wildlife in Australia has nothing on the wide world of America. Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic, a storytelling podcast featuring the amazing people of the Magic the Gathering community. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Join me and my guests as we share stories about what MTG means to us, how we got started playing Magic, the ups, the downs, the hilarious stories, and everything in between. In this episode, I'm talking to one of the OGs of the MTG community, Ben Sack. Ben hails from Down Under. That's Australia to all you non-Australian people. Ben was an early voice and community builder of the Magic scene in Australia many years ago. He organized tournaments, lent cards to pros like Kai Buddha, and quickly found himself traveling the world and playing Magic. Ben did quite well in Grand Prix and Pro Tours and eventually landed a job in the gaming industry. Ben credits the opportunities he's received getting jobs in the gaming industry to his involvement in Magic. Ben is excited to see the Magic community flourish in the future. I hope you enjoy my interview with community builder and Magic personality, Ben Sack. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me on Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, Sam Tang. And today we are here with the wonderful Ben Sack. Ben, how's it going? Great. It's, it's good to be here. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the show. Where are you joining us from? I'm in San Francisco right now. Um, I've uh, lived in um, America. I mean, I actually grew up in Australia, but I've lived in America for 13 years and um, the last eight of which are, are, have been in the Bay Area. 
That's awesome. Yeah, the Bay Area is very cool. Like, you know, pretty good weather, lots to do and see, good outdoors, good food. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I try and take advantage of all the different facets, like, you know, the cultural stuff, the, you know, the fact that there's a lot of great hikes, hikes and natures around here. And then, you know, there's just a really vibrant social and, uh, like, uh, business scene. I mean, like, one of the things I'm here for is actually for my work. And so, um, it's, it's actually really good to be in Silicon Valley and in tech here. Well, we want to hear more about that. But like all things, we start at the beginning. Ben, where did you grow up and how did you find magic? Yeah, so I uh, grew up in uh, Sydney, Australia. And so I actually uh, started magic, you know, the first year of magic. I mean, it, it took a little bit of time to get to Australia. I actually started in 1993. And that was um, I believe in my uh, 10th grade. And so how I started was I actually was in a uh, Shakespeare play. And in between rehearsals, we'd actually like a friend had like taught me how to play magic using some revised starters. And uh, from there, it really kind of like went out of control. <laughs> it's always awesome to hear how people start to play magic because it always starts off a little janky. It always starts off with friends kind of teaching you. That's really cool. What were some of the first decks that you built then? Revise was my first booster. I actually was able to get my hands on some of the earlier boosters. I was able to get my hands on some legends and a little bit of antiquities. And I didn't get to open up any uh, beta or Arabians, but I still had those around. Funnily enough, I think for the first few times, like my deck building was very, very poor. I mean, I, I built all the standards. I had a, like a white weenie deck, I had a black weenie deck. And um, actually, my first tournament deck involved every mana creature I could get my hands on. So like all the Lanawa Elves, Birds of Paradise, Tinderwall, Orcish, Lumberjacks, and X-Spells. And so it was basically trying to get as much mana into play as at once and then try and defeat my opponent with, uh, you know, just fireballing them or disintegrating them out. How was that uh, game plan? Did it work? Uh, not very good. Actually, I played in a tournament to uh, try and win some, I think it was some mana drains. I think that was my first tournament. Um, I went after school with uh, with a deck that I thought was pretty awesome, but uh, was not to be. It was not very good at all. I was actually beaten by much, much more efficient decks. And I'd never really played against people with that many counterspells in their decks. <laughs> That's really funny because I think we all as Magic players go through that concept and that stage of like, hey, we've got a great idea for a deck. We're going to build it in our heads. It works out so awesome. And then in practice, you take it to the tournament and it's like, it's a little different. <laughs> the meta is a little <laughs> different. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and, and back then, there was there's not that many like events and tournaments. I mean, I, I literally went from playing with my friends in the schoolyard to this tournament where I think it was a lot of university um, students. But they had tuned their deck, and I had—I basically only concepted my deck on paper. Maybe played a couple of games during lunchtime, and I thought I'm ready to go. But I—I uh, I was uh, a little bit. Uh, no, I, I was surprised with <laughs> how badly I did. And eventually you leveled up, you continued to play Magic because, you know, obviously we know you from your competitive history, you've done quite well. It's funny. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I'm personally known for, you know, too much success on the, uh, on the, on the pro scene. I mean, I've done, I've done pretty well. I've uh, won two Grand Prix and I've top aided one Pro Tour, so that's, it's not too shabby. But um, a lot of what people know me for is actually a lot of community building in Sydney and 
like with the pro players when they came to Australia. You know, there's a lot of stories I have about that. And, and actually, you know, I started off in, in Sydney. Once I actually, you know, kind of got really got into magic, I, I, I was running tournaments, I was doing judging, I was buying, selling, trading. I, I was trying to do everything about like the game of magic. I mean, I was really, really kind of like dedicated and, and, and really took up all my time. So you became a judge and you also got involved with building community. I understand that community building is one of the most important things when it comes to a, a niche hobby. Yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, what I saw was um, at that time, there was early stages of tournament play. Um, and, I, and I read a lot of tournament reports. Um, one of the things that uh, like connected me to a lot of the magic community in America was reading tournament reports and, and hearing about like like pro tours and things like that and, and, and Grand Prix. And in Australia, it, I mean, obviously, there wasn't that much to start off with. We, we were a little bit far away. Um, we got a couple of PTQs and things like that, but I really, you know, was very envious of all, all the tournament scene in, in, in America and, and in Europe for that matter. And so what I tried to do was try to add to what we had in the, in the scene. I actually tried to make a, a little bit of a, what I would be akin to a series in a, in Sydney where you play in different events that would qualify you for like an invitational at the end. Um, try to do these big two day events, um, where you could play, you know, limited and constructed. That wasn't something that actually really, uh, happened outside our national championships. And so just trying to like, you know, make it a bigger community. And it was, it, it started off small. I mean, I, I was able to get like, you know, maybe 50 or 60 players to some of my tournaments. And then eventually I was actually able to get up to, you know, 100, 150, which actually was a very big tournament back in Australia back, uh, back in the day. That was one part of what I tried to do with building community. And um, another part of it was, you know, also, you know, I, I qualified for my first Pro Tour in uh, 1996. And I, I, you know, made friends there too, uh, like on my uh, on the Pro Tour. And one of the ways that I can, uh, remained connected uh, with them was actually via, via um, MIRC. I don't know uh, if all your listeners are familiar with it, but it was a chat a chat so- piece, uh, piece of chat software, um, and there was actually quite a vibrant uh, scene on um, IRC with with Magic, and I actually got to meet a lot of the players that we know today as like Hall of Famers or you know just long term players. Um, and that's really how I, I, I made a lot of friends there. The internet has really been a catalyst for people to connect all around the world, listening to, you know, Brian David Marshall, Rich Hagen talk about, and like, of course, Mike Flores talk about like the Usenet groups and listen to Randy Bueller and Brian Weissman talk about the, the Usenet groups and like spreading information. And like in, in like your version of that was like the IRC chat program. Yeah, no, and, 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 and I was all over those Usenet groups and the IRC uh, program actually, you know, there's a place place where I met like Brian Kibler, uh, John Finkel, um, you know, a lot of players from, from, from Europe as well, like Kai Bude. And, and so it was how a player from Australia who actually didn't get to go to that many inter- international events was able to be f- friends with them. And, and actually the way that uh, I actually uh, got to meet a lot of them in person was um, eventually in the year 2000, I believe, if you remember the old uh, Duelist Invitational uh, events, so they all went all around the world and it, it was kind of the, the best players at the time. The event actually came to Sydney and I was able to actually kind of like 
meet all, uh, well, not meet all of them, but I, I knew some of them, but, you know, just hang out with a lot of the players. I hosted them. I, I took them around all around the city, saw some sites. It was actually really, really bonding time. You know, Ben, I really know what you're talking about, about meeting people online and building community online. And then when you meet them in person, you can go out and like hang out. There was an Australian magic player, Caitlin, that uh, I know on Twitter. And she is actually here in Seattle this week on Emerald City Comic Con. And she was like, hey, you want to hang out? And I was like, of course, absolutely. And it was like so awesome because to meet magic players in person after you've connected with them so frequently online, it's like such a cathartic community building moment. Really, it's like like reuniting with a long lost friend. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, even if you didn't know them, a lot of, you know, I, I've done a lot of what I'll call magic travel. In fact, uh, in the early 2000s, um, probably about 2002, I actually took a round the world trip uh, backpacking and I spent nine months on the road. And what I did was I, I just went to all the, like, you know, I think I went to a dozen different countries, not only, you know, backpacking and seeing the sites and everything else like that, but I actually, you know, went to all the stores and I went to Grand Prix that happened to be local. And it was actually one of my, you know, my favorite times in my life where I was able to meet people with magic. I would be able to go to a place where I didn't speak the language, but I was able to go to the store, see how people played in their native country. Back in the day when I was a teenager and I had an internship in high school, I was in China and I like obviously didn't have any friends. So I brought my magic deck. And so I somehow, I don't know how I even found these local game stores. There wasn't like Google Maps back in the day, but I somehow found them and I went in and like we totally played magic and like my Chinese wasn't that great and I couldn't read any of the card names on their Chinese cards but we and this was like back in like invasion blocks so but we definitely just like played magic and jammed games and it was so cool it was like a surreal experience to be able to communicate through this universal language of magic the gathering yeah yeah. I mean I've actually counted the amount of countries that I've played a Grand Prix in and I think it's boring on 30 or something like that wow it's it's, it's a lot I mean I I've I've played I think almost a hundred Grand Prix now. I, I I actually use Grand Prix as, as an excuse to do a lot of travel. Actually, my early times that I went to Grand Prix, you know, I lived in Australia, so the most accessible Grand Prix happened to be in Southeast Asia, and I, I went to some in Singapore and Malaysia, and I actually did some very early. Um, Coverage work. I, I was a ro- coverage writer for Grand Prix Manila, the first uh, Grand Prix that w- happened to be in the Philippines. You know, things like that. I, I mean, I, I basically tried to ingratiate myself into a lot of people from Wizards to, you know, like to, to, to get in on the community. And, and, and like very early on when coverage was, you know, just pen and paper, um, they actually allowed you to do coverage while playing. And actually that, that Grand Prix, in Manila, I actually played in it and covered it at the same time because, you know, we were really just writing like magazine articles after the fact. So you were playing in a lot of different Grand Prix and of course you won two of them and top aided some other ones and even top aided <laughs> a pro tour. Could you tell us about that? One of the funny funny things about like my competitive play, I, I think I, I'm pretty mediocre player, but who is very persistent. So I actually wasn't particularly good, but I was very, very kind of like persistent and, and dedicated to getting better. And um, for, for, for many years, I just didn't do very well. In fact, you know, I, my, my first Pro Tour is in 96. My first Grand Prix was, I think, the same year. 
And it wasn't until 2002 that I actually had any like really big success on the international stage. I actually had made the Australian team a couple times before that point. Like I, I, I just really hadn't broken through as much. And so I actually went to uh, South Africa and there's a story behind that. I, I mean, I've told this story a few times. It's, I, I think it's uh, so the year that uh, the Magic Invitational was in Sydney, I basically helped out a lot of players and, and one of the formats was a vintage style format. It had, had a lot of like, you know, expensive cards required like moxes and lotuses. And while they were in Sydney, I was able to, uh, help out and, you know, get the Sydney community to help lend some cards, I lend some of my cards. I, uh, I got some of my friends to be able to lend some of their cards so that these players could actually play some of these vintage cards. One of the players uh, happened to be uh, Kai Bude. So I, I think I lend him a lot of cool cards. And so the next year after the invitational was in Cape Town, South Africa. And I was talking to Kai online. He was saying, Oh, you know, are you going to lend me cards this year? <laughs> you know, half, <laughs> half, half, joke, half jokingly. He was just, he was joking about it. But then I said, well, you know, I can't get you the cards, um, in South Africa. I don't have all the connections, but, uh, also half jokingly, I said, well, you know, if you fly me over there, I'll, I'll lend you the cards. And he actually took that half joking suggestion and he said, okay, what if I fly you over there? You bring the cards that I need. You know, the invitation is always connected to a Grand Prix. So you can play in the Grand Prix that's associated with this event. And, you know, if you like make some money, you can pay some of it back for the, for the flight. But if, you know, you don't make any money, that's fine. You just come for the, for the ride. You can crash in my room. You know, it'll be fun. Why not? I mean, I, I, at the time, I, I really didn't have any kind of steady job. I was like, okay, I'll do this. And so I got the cards that he needed. He flew me over to uh, Cape Town, South Africa. I played in the Grand Prix. I won the Grand Prix. Actually, as a matter of fact, Kai actually won the Invitational there too, leading to his creation of the Void Mage Prodigy. And uh, so, so our room I happened to be crashing on the floor. On um, we we won both both events that weekend, which is pretty hilarious. Wow. And, <laughs> so, so, so I, you know, I, I, I went to a Grand Prix that I didn't really intend on going to and, and was able to win it. And it was, I mean, it was a small tournament. It was a very small tournament. I mean, as you would expect in South Africa, there's not a huge community there. I think it was like maybe like a couple hundred players. So, you know, this is not like the hugest of accomplishments when it comes from a difficulty standpoint. But there were some pro players. I mean, Ryan Fuller, um, there's a couple other uh, players, Alex Schwarzman, um, who actually had made the trip there. So it wasn't like devoid of pro players, but it was fairly, fairly light on it. And I was able to uh, to win that. And one of the funny things about like uh, that event was because it was in South Africa, there was a lot of like weird legal things about like prize paying. They couldn't pay me, a citizen of Australia, like, by check or something. They, they, they couldn't do it. So they, they paid me in cash, which is very, very unusual. I think it might be the only Grand Prix ever paid in cash, but I was actually paid my first place prize money in cash. And the event itself was held at a casino. <laughs> so, <laughs> so after, after the event, um, you know, a, a lot of the, the players were actually playing, um, you know, just some of the table games. And, you know, I, I suddenly was flush with, with cash and, what I did was I like I I was playing some blackjack with all the players. I mean Kai was there, he was fine with this. And um I actually doubled my money. So I actually won two Grand Prix worth of of prize money, was able to pay Kai for the entire flight, 
still have basically a, a few thousand um, in my pocket. And, you know, I, I was able to win that Grand Prix. And so that actually was like the beginning of the best season of, of, of Magic that I had, where I actually won another Grand Prix in Melbourne, and as well as coming top eight at the uh, Booster Draft Pro Tour in Yokohama in, in 2003. And I, I mean, at, at the time, I felt well, I was at the top of my game. I, I really, really practiced a lot. I was very good at draft. My memory at the time was very f- sharp. So I could remember things like, you know, what I passed. I could actually figure out, you know, signals and things like that. So I actually felt like really, really on top of my game. And I haven't really felt since then as capable because I actually took a, a little bit of kind of like a competitive break in, in 2005 and like, and when I say a little bit one, like six months or so. And I, and that was actually when I started, I moved to America to start my, uh, my job in, in game design and that took a little bit of priority, but I was, I mean, you know, I've, I've still been able to keep up with it. I've actually, you know, make it a grand, um, top eight of a grand prix in, in Sydney about uh, one and a half years ago two maybe two years ago. And so um, I've still been able to keep up with it. In fact, uh, last week I was, I went to grand prix Memphis and I lost in the finals of the PTQ on day two. So I almost made it back to the pro tour again. Wow, Ben. I mean, what a magic bucket list. Kai Buddha flies you out to South Africa to play in just like for funsies. He wins, you win, you go to the casino, you double your money. That's crazy. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I think I owe a lot of what I am to magic. I mean, it's it's not just, in fact, I would say that, you know, the tournaments and they're such a small thing about what I, I value about magic. I mean, I would say my career, um, you know, I, I'm a creative director in, 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 um, in games and I've been able to get that via magic. In fact, initially I, I, I came over to uh, the United States to work for a company called Upper Deck, um, who also were making trading card games. Um, and they actually knew me because I, I, I played it, played magic. In fact, some of the designers there, I met with a side, in a side draft and, and, and with that side draft, they said, Hey, why don't you, uh, you, we know that you're interested in game design. Why don't you like come work for, for, for Upper Deck? And I said, Oh, well, I was really, really, um, dedicated to actually getting into game design. In fact, one of the things I was trying to do was I was actually trying to, uh, work for Wizards in the early 2000s in R&D. And uh, this is actually when Randy Bueller was head of R&D at the time. You know, we, we talked and he was actually like really interested because he'd heard of me and, and by reputation. They were very interested, but then at the time, they weren't interested in like international people like going into R&D because it was just a, a little bit of a legal hassle, a little bit of a visa hassle. And so they went, they went against that. In doing so, I was able to actually make some contacts which eventually led me to Upper Deck. And Upper Deck, I mean, the people that I worked with at Upper Deck, I mean, these are some of the most famous names of Magic. I mean, Brian Kibler is actually my roommate while I was uh, living in San Diego. Um, we, we actually lived together for three years and we're really good friends. Uh, Patrick Sullivan, uh, he, he was also working at Upper Deck in, in San Diego with us and, and, and players like Dave Humphreys, who's, uh, he's an R&D right now and, uh, like Justin Gary, uh, Pro Bowl champion, Antonino De Rosa, all these players like were actually like in the same place in San Diego, working at the same company, and it was actually extremely fun to, you know, be immersed in a lot of my friends making games. 
And so we actually contributed to making, making, uh, the, the TCGs, uh, versus system. It was the superhero trading card game. If you remember the world of Warcraft trading card game, and we made a bunch of other things as well, but, uh, there was a lot of good gaming energy and that's how I got into game design. It's, it's actually working with a lot of magic players in, in making trading card games. And then eventually, actually, I moved into digital gaming also via um, a magic contact where – so there's a uh, there's a person called Henry Stern. Henry Stern actually was a semifinalist in the 1996 World Championship. He also then worked at uh, Wizards R&D for a couple of years. And then uh, he eventually worked uh, for a, a digital gaming company called Zynga. And uh, I, what I, I actually was like on my way out of Upper Deck – I was like trying to get out of like paper games because I felt like digital was the future. And I put out my resume in a bunch of places. And one of the people that saw my resume was actually uh, Henry Stern, who actually knew me via magic. You know, we had never met, but we, he, he'd heard of me and, um, he said, Hey, let's, uh, interview this guy because, you know, he, he, he knew that magic players were, you know, pretty analytical and good at, uh, problem solving. And so he said, why don't we give this guy a, a chance? And so they brought me in, interviewed me, and and I was able to actually like move into digital games. And then you know I've I, I worked at Singer, I've now worked at kind of Luke, Disney and Lucasfilm. Right now I'm just kind of uh, really deep in digital game design, and that's actually you know my passion. And, and it's all thanks to Magic and a lot of the uh, community as well as competitive stuff that I did early in my career. What I really hear, Ben, is the influence of the community as it's had on your life and your career. And I also hear how you fed into the community and built a community in Australia and, you know, helped helped people get cards. And that kind of like snowballed into all of these other things and all of these other experiences you've had in life. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and, and it's one of the things that I, I do tell, you know, I, I've actually recently have um, become friends with the Kiefer family. Um, I know you've interviewed Quinn and, and I was talking to them um, pretty recently about like the important thing about being part of the magic community is the people and, and it's making sure that you're not burning bridges. You're, you're, you're actually like trying to be as good a contributor to everybody's experience as possible. Like there, there's no point in being salty at the end of a match. <laughs> what you want to do is encourage people, talk about the game in, in a very positive manner. You want to be like as inclusive as possible. And I think magic is better for it. And one of the things that, that I've always tried to do in the magic community is add to it with every event that I play. You know, if someone goes away from a, a match, uh, that I play against, uh, play them against um, at a Grand Prix or a Pro Tour or, you know, even an FNM. I want them to feel that they've had a good experience that they, they can take away and that's memorable. It's so easy to, like, make someone, like, upset or just discouraged and also really, really easy to actually, like, make their tournament experience better just by, you know, being nice or talking about the game or just trying to be encouraging to them. And so I, I, I really think that, you know, my hope for the magic community is always to kind of breed positivity. Yeah, Patrick Chapin famously said in an article he wrote a while ago, that I think this was like for the original Innistrad pre-release or something, you know, he said, as Magic players, we are all ambassadors to the game. You never know who you're going to be sitting across the table from, and you're also not going to know about how your Im 
actions are going to impact other people in the room. And so it's you know be kind to your opponent because they're not really your opponent. They're part of the community. They are the player base. They are you, right? You know, invite people who are new into the game. Don't intimidate kids. You know, and children are going to be our future generations who's going to carry on and really you know grow the game and grow the player base. So yeah, no, actually that last point is very very important. I actually wanted to to really stress that. I, I actually think that more players should mentor younger players. I, th- I think that one of the things that can be very daunting in tournament play is not having someone you can look up to or you can get advice from or to just be able to rely on um, in, in, in case things like get a little tough. Uh, I, every player who's been playing for you know, a couple of years or more I really implore you to kind of like find some young players who, you know, you, you see potential in are, are, are good people and, and really, you know, they're at the beginning of their career and, you know, all you need is to like kind of tap them in the right direction and they can be the next like superstar in magic. I, I, I really think that and not just superstar, they can just be a positive influence in the game because you know, when I first started, I mean, the magic community was very small, but very tight. Now the game is played by, you know, tens of millions of players. Its next evolution needs to be that it becomes more inclusive. I mean, I think, you know, we, we, there's a lot of talk about like, you know, women in magic, but I don't, I, I, even beyond that, I, I think that magic needs to find it new and different people to access to get bigger because I think it's taken all the gamers because all the people who might play like a TCG have played magic at some point. I, I, I honestly believe that we've, we've hit almost saturation point of people who are like primed to play magic. Now we have to go beyond that. We have to look at like people who, who play console games or pe- people who like play sports, like, or, or women or like, um, people of color that whose communities don't like necessarily get, um, at like magic naturally. And so how do we do that? We do that by being inclusive, by being like, by being proactive about including people and, and young people too. It's that concept of the blue ocean strategy. You can't just keep, you know, milking the whatever player base it is for whatever. <laughs> you have to go out and look for a new player base. And so if all of the people who are interested in TCGs have cut their teeth on magic, basically, magic is like the gold standard for a great TCG, possibly the perfect TCG, who knows, right? Now you've got to go towards those uh, console game players, right? And so like products like Duels of the Planeswalker that was released, you know, on Xbox, that was so immensely popular. It was just so beautiful. And so many people got into it. I've talked to so many new-ish players, novice and intermediate players, and they all said, hey, yeah, I saw it one day on Xbox and now I'm into magic. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I really think that it, it's, it's that kind of thing that gets people in. I mean, you know, even the challenge decks that they're doing right now, that's a, that's a way to, to bridge players into tournament play with things like Masters 25 and like a bigger focus on, on modern. Um, I think Wizards are, are trying to make sure that their new players and enfranchised players are actually getting more invested in the game. There's this concept of uh, when you buy spaghetti sauce and you go to the grocery store and you stand there at the spaghetti sauce aisle and it's like this massive like 27 flavor behemoth. Like, do I get the three cheese? Do I get the meat sauce? Do I get the veggie one? It's just like, why are there even this many different flavors of spaghetti sauce, right? 
But the spaghetti sauce companies learned early on that people like choice, and whether it's not for you, it is going to be for another segment of the market. And so, whenever I see new products that get released that are like challenge decks or dual decks or commander product or draft product or unsets or whatever, I'm just like, you know, it may not necessarily be for your tournament PT grinder. It could be for someone else, right? And we shouldn't, as a community, ever be like, oh gosh, there's no value in that, and you know, like. How is that going to affect my collection or the finance or of Magic or whatever? It's like, how about it's for fun? How about it's to bring in a new kind of player? Yeah, absolutely. I I I think I, I think uh, worrying about your collection as an investment. I mean, people have spent a lot of money. I mean, I've definitely spent a lot of money on on Magic cards and and would prefer that I didn't lose that money um, in my investment. But I think the best way to think about some of these new sets where they're reprinting some 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 of the more valuable cards is that it makes magic bigger and when magic is bigger the cards themselves will be worth more because the the whole pool is is bigger to draw from and even more people will want old cards and things like that and so i actually think that yes it may seem like it's a small hit in the, initially but in the long term it'll actually be much better you'll be able to play magic for 50 years rather than 20 years like I, I really do think that Magic is a, a perpetual game. It, it will never actually ever get old. You talked earlier about what is it the perfect game? I think it's very close to the best game ever made. I, I've had this discussion with many game designers and and players, and I think Magic is very very close to the best commercial game. And why why I say commercial is it's important for the game to evolve. It's important for Magic to change. It's important for them to print new sets. And one of the reasons what we're still playing is because the game changes every, with every set, with every year. Like, I've played this game for 25 years. It's still not old because the game evolves. And so you don't want too much stagnation in the, in the game. Otherwise, people will stop playing. I mean, people will say, oh, I'm bored of this. I've, this is the same stuff. The same decks are, are successful, the same cards are successful, or the same players are successful. It's kind of, it's like a, a rhyming poem. Blue cards do roughly the same thing set up the set. Red cards do the same thing set up the set. But it's the combination of what happens to be strong, weak, maybe the, the, the flavor of the card or the, the slight mechanic is different, such that it's changed enough where the balance of power is shifted. But you can always come back to it and you realize that red is always going to do direct damage. Black is going to do discard. You know, blue is going to counter things. And you can always feel familiar while not settled. And I think that's really, really important about, you know, why the game of magic has had so much longevity. And I'd love talking about what you just said, because as a segue into our next section, especially since you've had such a rich history with magic and you have a game design kind of mentality and also professional background, Ben, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the color blue for our Wooberg series. I'm going to just quickly talk about colors in general. I, I think one thing that magic does really well is it allows you to actually have your personality expressed in cardboard. And I think that's a very, very strange thing to think about. Think about a game where, let's say it's a board game, like Monopoly. The the strategy for every play is the same. <laughs> yeah, right? it is. <laughs> You're just trying to acquire like as many properties as possible and then get as much money. So there, there's no differentiation for like how the game strategy really kind of unfolds. And and for many, many games, that's true. You actually like playing the same game just in a, in a different body. 
what magic allows for and what the color wheel does for and what colors do for magic is they allow you to say, okay, what is the, my personality in the game? Am I aggressive? Am I intellectual? Am I disruptive? Am I, you know, just put everything on the table? And each of these colors embodies a different strategy and a different approach to, to magic and the world. And I would say that for a lot of players, they choose the, the cards and the decks they play based on how it manifests their personality. I mean, obviously tournament players, they, they approach it. What's the best deck? What's the, what's the right, right cards in the metagame? That's, that's, that's for sure. Like one way to look about it. Look at about it. Think about there are players like, like Craig Wesco, who plays a lot of white. There's like Brian Kibler, who plays a lot of green. Like Patrick Sullivan, who plays a lot of red. They play these colors not just because they're strong, but they actually represent them. And so what blue in particular represents is a couple of things. One is a, a cerebral aspect of, of magic. The counterspell is the easiest way to, uh, to, to, to embody this. Counterspell allows you to control what gets played in the game. And you get every time a spell gets played, there's a decision point. Do I counter it or do I let it go? And so one of the wonderful things about how, how uh, magic is, is that there can be decks that have a lot of decisions and decks that, that have not so many decisions. And blue, like card draw and counter magic and, and some other things, really emphasizes a lot of decision making. And it's why a lot of, let's say, good players or people who think they're smart basically are drawn towards this color. And because it allows them to feel in control, it allows them to uh, feel that they're using their, their brains, they're deciding, they're solving the puzzle. And it's that sense of power and control and like intellectualism. Funnily enough, like a lot of the cards, they're named for being smart, like brainstorm. You're thinking about something and you're trying to come up with some new strategy or new tactic. And that's exactly what it does. It lets you draw two cards. You have to put some of them back. You have to kind of like make all these decisions. And that's what blue is about. Blue is about making decisions and feeling that you're in control. Ben, why do you feel like we need to have this color within the role of the game? I mean, yeah, sure, decisions, but like all things in a game, there has to be decisions. But why blue for that? Richard Garfield basically decided to put a lot of attitudes in each of the colors. Like, like red is very, very kind of quick to anger. Blue is very slow and contemplative. Black is very kind of greedy and manipulative. And white is very like friendship. And it's about uh, group dynamics. And green is very primal. I think having the personalities is why magic is as diverse as it is. Blue is a very calming, thoughtful color, and that's probably why blue was associated with these mechanics. I think magic is a way of manifesting your own personal preference and how, how you would like to have influence and power, and, and, and blue is the influence of, of decisions and uh, cerebralness. And in that design space, Ben, you talked about how magic has evolved throughout its entire 25-year history. What do you feel like is a future trend for the color blue in Magic the Gathering? The power of the game mechanics were naturally in blue. Like card draw is one of the most, if not the most powerful general game mechanic. Early on, they knew that card drawing was very good, Ancestral Recall's rare, and Dark Ritual, Light and Bolt, and Healing Self, and Giant Growth are all common. So, so obviously they realized that that was true. But the problem is, I think that Blue's part of the color pie, card drawing, counter, counter magic, bounce, stealing stuff, is all just too powerful. And so, so what they need to do is think of a less influential area of the game to 
geared to blue such that it's not intrinsically just more powerful. I mean, there was a whole like probably more than a decade, 12, 15 years um, when blue was the best color. I mean, people still think blue is the best color. Funnily enough, blue right now is pared down quite a lot from what it used to be. But I really think in the future, they're going to have to find some things that blue can do. They aren't as raw powerful as card drawing or counter magic. They're, they're going to have to think of things like scrying is card draw light. It's one direction where they've tried to power that down. And, and now they make counter magic more expensive and things like that. So I think we might need to see blue spread its wings, so to speak, and have more powered down like mechanics just because intrinsically they were a little bit uh, unbalanced. Yeah, I think countering things while it being fun for a blue mage is not really fun for anyone else, especially not fun for a novice player who's trying to learn how to play magic. I think card draw is quite powerful. And so if you have too much card draw, then every other color wants to pair up with blue and make these basically invincible decks. And so you're right, like Scry has been card draw light. And you know what? They've tested Scry for a really long time. And Scry is very good. I mean, Scry, like ever since Scry was released in Theros, it's good. It's a good enough mechanic that I like scrying. Personally, especially as magic is becoming more combat-based and, you know, people like creatures, they want creatures to do things, I think Blue's creatures just suck. I mean, apart from, like, Delver and True Name Nemesis and, like, Snapcaster Mage and Vendillion Click, it's just like... We need better creatures. Like, sure, they can fly. <laughs> Maybe people don't like unblockable creatures. And like, but you can't just be getting like dumb little pirates that loot or little merfolk and then like your occasional storm tide leviathan. Like, there has to be a little bit more something in the middle. Yeah, things like air elemental, obviously a classic that space. I think the, the mid range of blue cards are either card advantage cards like Snapcaster Mage or something like that or big flyers. And I do think that there needs to be something that's not quite as powerful on one end or as uninteractive like always flying or something like that. So I do think that Blue's creatures need, need a little bit of an overhaul. Ben, I really appreciate your commentary on Blue, especially given your history with the game and your competitiveness with the game. You think about competitive play on a different axis than most people do, right? Being Having access to win a couple of GPs, top eighting, getting to the Pro Tour, top eighting a Pro Tour, playing Magic and being connected with all of these legends. It's just putting you on a really different level of thinking than the majority of Magic players. So I really wanted to ask you some advice for our listening audience. What advice do you have for players that are new to the game? Yeah, so I, I I think the the way that I generally, you know, when I talk to players who are coming up or even, you know, ex- expert players about how to get better, start your journey always with humility. And the reason why I say that is magic is a game that is unsolvable. It, you always have to continue to learn to get better at this game. And you have to presu- you'll hear a lot of advice like play with people who are better than you. And I and I think it's not just that. It goes beyond that. It's like listen to the people who are better than you or try to understand their perspective, even though sometimes you may disagree with it. So you you need to be able to like look at every situation from many different like perspectives. From there you actually get the epiphanies that take you to the next level. If you start off in a position of thinking that you know it and maybe you can add to it slightly. I think the biggest problem is that you close your mind off to, you know, potentially groundbreaking like insights that players who are not like you might actually have. I mean, I've learned plenty from players who are better than me, plenty from players who are worse than me, older than me, younger than me, everything. Like I, one of the things I'd like to do 
is make sure that you know I'm, I'm ch- checking my what I call my priors, ch- checking you know does the foundations to how I'm thinking about something are they the same or do I need to actually like revise them? It, like just because you have made some heuristics, you've already you know shown shorthand ways of thinking about things. It doesn't mean that you need you shouldn't revise them every once in a while. Um, I, I just recently experienced this. I actually uh, played a, a deck by uh, Jack Kiefer, so the Quinn's brother. Uh, Jack Jack was having a little bit of a hard time. He he fancies himself as a deck builder, and I think he's a very very good deck builder. But he was having trouble having some some players think that the deck he was designing, which is his vampires deck, was worth it because the cards on paper looked very very bad okay they, they, they were like draft cards they were like you know just this vampire's deck did not look like it was really good but you know after talking to him i played a few leagues on magic online and then really kind of like got a feel for the deck and talked to him and he talked to me and we actually you know all played the um deck at the grand prix now i didn't make day two but jack actually made top 32 i actually played the deck again because I thought that I was just a bit unlucky, and I, you know, top ed, uh, I lost in the final of the PTQ. The, the moral of the story is uh, is that Jack is 15 years old. I'm, you know, almost three times his age. You know, you have to understand that good ideas can come from anywhere, and you shouldn't have any preconceived notions about where they could come from. Keep your ears open. Keep your kind of like head reasoning open to, you know, places that you normally would expect. You more normally wouldn't expect a, a, an epiphany or, or, or some learning. Keeping an open mind and learning, because Magic the Gathering is a very complex puzzle. I really like that. And I think that even for myself and also other players, having access and having that context to always be thinking and growing and learning, especially in such a complex game that is always evolving with new sets, that's very important. And the minute that, you know, we stop learning is like the moment that we said, oh, we're done. We're perfect. <laughs> and that's, that's never a way to play this game. You've got to make it fun for yourself. Getting kind of hung up over losses or top decks or, you know, mana issues. It's a fast way to make your, you know, what should be a fun like experience very, very, like, you know, frustrating and tiresome. Okay, everyone, we're going to have more from Ben Sec coming up. But first, a quick break from our sponsors. Okay, Ben, you've got a Patreon supporters gift for us. Could you tell us what it is? So this is actually one of my favorite cards that I I started off playing um, when I got my first starter of Revised. Uh, It's Stone Rain. This is an oldie but a goodie. Playing land every turn is obviously a pretty fundamental like aspect of magic. And usually people would be exactly the same amount of mana every turn. One thing about like magic is that you can actually kind of like attack and disrupt your opponent's resource system. And and I think that's just something that, I mean, I felt like it was very cool because it it was a one way of like suppressing your opponent. You know, you you could like make them discard things. You could make them like kill the creatures or something like that. But like for some reason attacking their land, something that's generally quite sacred. I, I just like the power of that. And like stone rain into pillage into all the other kind of like land destruction. I've always really, really liked land destruction. 
Stone Rain is such a magic card. I mean, I can just imagine R&D right now. They're like, we need a card that destroys lands. And it's just like having them think about, is it a sorcery? Is it an instant? Is it, you know, exactly what is it? Obviously today, you know, Stone Rain is a sorcery and, and many other Stone Rain variants are sorceries. And it's like, do we have it at one mana, two mana, three mana, four mana, five mana? You know, it, and then also to ask ourselves, why is it red versus another color? And then even like the flavor, right? Like if something is going to destroy land, it's definitely going to be rain of stones, just like boulders falling from the sky and just causing havoc. And whenever I see that art, it's always hilarious because people in that poor village just look miserable. <laughs> it's true. They're just kind of like running in fear is what I would imagine kind of, you know, the uh, people in Pompeii felt like when Vesuvius was erupting. Oh, yeah, that's pretty. Yes, that Pompeii feeling. <laughs> Hashtag Pompeii feeling. That's pretty, that's pretty miserable. Well, thank you very much, Ben. Okay, listeners, we're going to have a bunch of signed copies by Ben Sec of Stone Rain for all of our Patreon supporters. Thanks so much, Ben. No worries. Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by the generous support of listeners like you. In the last three seasons, the show has been downloaded over 100,000 times and has reached the far corners of the world. Thank you so much for listening to the show. As you know, I give out gifts, little mementos from my interviews to my Patreon supporters. If you'd like to receive signed cards and other cool things, become a supporter at patreon.com slash kitchen table magic. Thank you so much. This episode of Kitchen Table Magic was brought to you by Paragon City Games. Kitchen Table Magic has been all about the origins of the game and the members of the community. And as a community, we've come a long way since the game first started. Apart from the kitchen table, the only other places in your local community to play Magic are at local game stores. And that's why places like Paragon City Games are so important for our community. At Paragon City Games, you'll find a spacious and clean showroom with lots of elbow room for weekly Magic events. You'll find thoughtful accessories like die-hard metal dice and handcrafted wooden deck boxes. You'll find a huge supply of legacy, modern, and standard staples, sealed product, and tabletop games. It's places like Paragon City Games with their friendly staff that allow local Magic communities to gather in. And if you can't make it there in person, be sure to watch their weekly stream at twitch.tv slash Paragon City Games. Remember to spread the love with a like on Facebook and a follow on Twitter for Paragon City Games. They have great online reviews that shows their commitment to excellent customer service for their player community. Kitchen Table Magic is sponsored by Card Kingdom. Cardkingdom.com is a great place to shop for Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, pre-constructed decks, and gaming accessories. They have a huge selection of Magic cards, from the latest sets to an ever-flowing supply of modern, commander, legacy, and standard staples. Card Kingdom also loves to buy Magic cards. They'll offer you cash or in-store credit for your Magic cards. And if you're new to Magic, you'll love playing any one of their pre-constructed battle decks built by Card Kingdom. Be sure to sign up for Card Kingdom's email newsletter to receive coupon codes, special deals, and deck techs by Magic Pro Chris Van Meter. Card Kingdom has so much to offer, fast shipping, great customer service, so I hope you'll check them out. And if you'd like to help support Kitchen Table Magic when shopping at Card Kingdom, please use our affiliate link. Just go to cardkingdom.com slash KTM when you shop. Okay, and we are back. 
Ben, I have some rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready? Yep, go for it. Okay, here we go. Ben, rapid fire question number one. Of the five colors of magic, white, blue, black, red, and green, which is your favorite color and why? Uh, my favorite color is actually black. You know, just as a game designer, one of the things that fascinates me about black is black pays a lot of can do a lot of things. It can kill creatures. It can discard things. Like you can pretty much interact with every uh, card and permanent in the game. But it does so at a cost usually. Usually like a life payment, or sometimes there's a discard cost, or sometimes there's there's a you know temporary temporary loss of 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 something. And and I love the fact the decisions you have to make is like okay, I can discard any card in your hand, except I have to pay two life, you know, with thought seeds. And so that means that I'm willing to trade some of a different resource than you normally would. Usually it would just be a mana or a card, but in this case it use life in order to exchange a resource. And I think the decisions and the interaction that black actually has in the game is just really, really fascinating and um, causes a lot of decisions and a lot of kind of like uh, cost-benefit analyses and things like that. I, I just really, really like what black does. I've honestly played probably more black decks by a factor of two compared to any other color. That's so fascinating. And which color would you pair with black? I generally like uh, red-black, um, but I've played a lot of uh, blue-black as well. So I, I would say like either red-black or blue-black. I mean, red-black is obviously a much more aggressive, a much more kind of creature-oriented color. I, I've, I've played quite a few um, of those decks in, in my history. In fact, my first Pro Tour that I qualified for, I, I drafted red-black in the uh, in the top eight, so I was able to make the Pro Tour with Red Black. So I was kind of like, uh, that's why it's kind of dear and dear to my heart. But a lot of my most successful decks have been uh, blue and black. And so played a lot of control decks that uh, have a lot of removal and card draw, maybe have one or two uh, winning conditions. So almost the opposite of Red Black. Ben, rapid fire question number two. If you could change something about Magic the Gathering, what would it be? I would actually love to make it all free. And I understand this is not a really like you know palatable way of like this doesn't work as a business. But if I could actually make everyone able to play the game and have all access to all the cards, and you know we'd all be playing tournaments and you know it'd be almost as ubiquitous ubiquitous as chess, I think so many more people would fall in love with the game. People would see how great Magic is, and I think one of the reasons why Magic is still around um, right now is obviously because it's a very good business and it's very lucrative as well. Part of me, part of the game designer of me, part of the people who wants to kind of give games to the world would love if everyone had every card instead of playing like football or baseball, we'd be playing Magic, you know, there'll be Little League Magic, that kind of thing. So that part of it would be uh, amazing. And I think uh, a lot of people would love Magic if they could all uh, play any of it. That might be a future possible digital product for Magic, just like you pay a subscription and you have access to all the cards and there's no trading and you just play. Yeah, no, I think so. Ben, rapid fire question number three. If you could give something to every Magic player, what would it be? <laughs> I kind of answered this in the last one, but uh, it, it, I guess it would be every card. But let's, let, let's, let's, move, let's come up with something else. I think have a one-hour conversation with every Magic player and... I feel that I've been pretty successful in you know, talking to Magic players about what they love about the game, having a great conversation with them. And, I, and in, in some ways, I, I wish I could have a conversation with every Magic player. Uh, one of the reasons I, I actually wanted to do this this podcast is because uh, I would reach a different type of, of, of Magic player that, that that listened to your to your podcast. And so 
I guess, you know, I would like to give them time. I'd like to give them, you know, time to talk, time to say what they love about it, time to ask me questions or time to, you know, just to, you know, throw some ideas at each other. And, and, I, and I think that would actually be really, really fun. And that was really one of the core tenets of why I started this podcast as I just wanted to talk to people. I really wanted to hear their perspective and hear who they were and not necessarily talk about strategy the whole time, but also get their philosophy on what the community meant to them. 100%. The reason why I reached out to you was after I spoke to Marshall Sutcliffe, I was like, hey, Marshall, who else uh, should I talk to? And uh he didn't hesitate. He said, Ben Sack, you're going to want to talk to that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, it's funny. Marshall and I, I mean, Marshall's obviously been in the game for a while, but like, we've um, only become good friends probably the last uh, few years. And now he's one of my favorite people in in, in the world. Like, I, I, I think that Marshall, like, has a community building spirit and also is fun to hang out with. You know, his contribution to the game since he's, you know, really ramped it up is immeasurable from teaching people limited to his commentary to just being a nice guy in magic. I, th I think that he's one of the most important pillars of the community. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad to see him flourish. Ben, rapid fire question number four. What do you see in the future of Magic the Gathering? So, I mean, the obvious answer is like, you know, Magic moving more into digital. We have Magic Arena, um, we've had Magic Online and things like that. I actually think that while there's a lot of growth to be hap happening on digital, Magic is going to remain a very much paper product for its entire time. That being said, I think Magic is going to last for a long time, hopefully beyond my lifetime. And, and, I, and it's very, very possible that you know, people are going to be playing Magic in 100 years because I think that there are things about the game that are so compelling and they're very, very kind of like connected to a human's desire to problem solve. This is the game that people, that everyone plays. It's the Monopoly. What I say about Monopoly is in everybody has like a deck in their game closet at home or something like that. And so if someone comes along and says, hey, let's play some magic. And, it wouldn't, and you won't have to teach rules to anybody. And, you know, everybody just knows this implicitly. And it's very much a part of the culture. And that's my hope, I think. More than the guarantee, I think, you know, we need to move towards that. But I, but I do think that that is an achievable goal where everyone kind of knows how to play magic. And it's the game of choice when, you know, someone comes over or something like that. And last, Ben, do you have any asks or requests of the listening audience? No specific asks or requests other than, you know, I, you could follow me on uh, Twitter. So I'm at TBS dash, just written as T-B-S-D-A-S-H. I'm also TBS dash on Twitch. I'm going to actually start streaming um, very soon, probably the next uh, few weeks or so. I'm actually moving to Barcelona actually for, for work. Uh, so I'm actually going to be in Europe uh, much more now. If you happen to be in any of the events that I happen to be at, please come up to me. Feel free to ask me questions. Feel, feel free to have a conversation. I love talking to people about anything and everything, um, magic-wise or otherwise. Um, I, I'm pretty much a open book and a pop culture theme. So if you just want to have a conversation, if you just want to say hi, shoot the breeze about like anything about gaming, please come up to me and I would be glad to talk to you. Wow, that is so cool. We didn't even talk about you moving to Barcelona. I love Spain. So the next time I'm there, I'm going to hit you up. We're going to go eat some jamón and drink some cheap red wine. Absolutely. I, I, any, anyone who, who, who visits uh, Barcelona, please let me know and maybe we can have a drink and play some magic. 
Ben, I just wanted to thank you for sharing your voice and also sharing your friendship and stewardship and community building to the game and also the community that is Magic the Gathering. It really takes something to be out in the bush. Not that, you know, Australia is not undeveloped or anything like that, but really to be out there early on in the community and create a fun environment and community build and make tournaments for uh, Magic players. And obviously that's given itself kind of back to you in many ways that you found so much success and happiness and friendships and it's led you to far off places in the world. So Thank you so much for all of that, Ben. It's very important to have people like you, pillars of the community, who share and grow this hobby that we love. Thanks very much, Sam. I mean, I, I would say that Magic has given to me 20-fold what I've given to it. And so I hope to give it at least a little bit as as much as it's given me because I because I really think that it's, a, it's the best game in the world and it's got the best people in the world playing it. And we just need to have even more people playing it. I too am looking forward to Magic's future and am eager for the community to grow and invite new players to the game. Bensec is on Twitter at TBS Dash. Hang out with Ben on his stream at twitch.tv slash TBS Dash. I'll have all the links in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. Thanks everyone for listening to this week's show. I want to take a moment to thank all of my Patreon supporters, Brian, Marcus, James L, Alex, Trevor, Caitlin, Aaron M, Neil, James G, Aaron C, Corey, Chad, Logan S, The Magic Man Sam, Jesse, Ben, Nick, Eternal Dirtles, Matthias, Charlie, Geraint, Scryfall, Matt, Ian, Prescovi, Carl, and Logan F. Listeners, if you'd like to get special gifts for my interviews, become a supporter at patreon.com slash kitchen table magic. Your financial contribution goes to making the show better and keeps it running by helping to pay for audio equipment, software, and server costs. Now that I've partnered with Card Kingdom, there's a new way to support the show. When you shop at cardkingdom.com, just use my affiliate link, cardkingdom.com slash KTM. A big thank you again to all of my Patreon supporters, past, present, and future. Your support of Kitchen Table Magic allows me to share stories about the amazing people in the Magic the Gathering community with the world. I've created a new YouTube channel called PlayMTG. It's an upbeat, fast-paced new YouTube channel featuring deck techs from the pros, learn-to-play tutorials, level-up advice, card discussion, MTG community news, and more. Just go to youtube.com slash C slash PlayMTG. You'll find links to the PlayMTG YouTube channel on facebook.com slash PlayMTG. And be sure to follow the show on Twitter at Play underscore MTG. I'm looking forward to creating new video content, and I've got some cool collaborations in the works please be sure to subscribe to Kitchen Table Magic on Apple Podcasts. And if you love the show, please leave us a review. It really helps other people find this podcast. Kitchen Table Magic is also on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Hipsters of the Coast, and mtgcast.com. Follow the show on Twitter at KTM Podcast, where you'll find me tweet memes. Yeah, mostly memes. The show is also on facebook.com slash kitchentablemagicpodcast. All of the show notes are at kitchentablemagic.org. Remember to listen to past episodes and be sure to share KTM with a friend. Coming up in the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic... You don't need to be an avatar of woe to love terror. To you, the cabal therapy and surgical extraction are all splendid agony. You can talk ad nauseum about a tragic slip or a fatal push, because to you, it's all just a dark ritual. No stabbing pain, no festering wound, no cry of contrition can make you sick and tired of the damnation. The painful truth is that you are without a shadow of a doubt a black mage. 
In part three of our five-part series on Wooburg, we're diving into the color black. So grab your bitter blossoms and snuggle up in your favorite oubliette. We're headed to the tomb of Yogmoth, all on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic. <laughs>